Martini Theatre on the Air is proud to present the man who would be Sherlock Holmes. Episode 5. Ah, Inspector, good to see you, and not a moment too soon. The star shall be in your charge by the end of the week. Of that, I give you my personal guarantee. Now, I may need your assistance in tracking down a young ruffian by the name of Bungie. Oh, really? How coincidental. For it just so happens that Mr. Gregson is dealing with this Bungie fellow at this very moment. All... What's left of him, anyway? An assembly of police picket a variety of positions throughout the dingy storehouse. Where Holmes, Dr. Watson, Inspector Lestrade and Gregson stand by a pendulous hook that gently swings to and fro from the weight of Bungie's jacket and Bungie's jacket only. As for the rest of them, his body lay strewn about the floor of a crumbling edifice. His legs, arms and head, all separate from his extra-wide torso. Holmes keenly observes two sailing tickets floating in a puddle at his feet, swirling the water about with his cane, and keeping it all to himself. I've come to pay off this account. Oh, yes. The Vam Lied account. A cause of great anxiety amongst our creditors. That should put everything on the square. Shouldn't it? Of that, I am not so sure. You see, this balance has been riddled with accruing delinquencies for some time now. They want all of it. Sent up north by this afternoon. (laughs) Don't make me laugh. There's well over £2,000 in that bag. Lord love a duck. Yorkshire by this afternoon. A lonely manor house, it's lifeless and tossled, resting upon a garden of strangulating weeds with only a grove of dead and twisted trees to keep them company as a northern wind tears away at its failing facade. Inside the house is a testament to the ravages of abandonment. A Georgian relic with a large grease-stained window that surveys all of the aforementioned, 
Next to its barren fireplace stands the professor, and above its mantle hangs a bedsheet upon the wall. And above that dangles a coat of arms. Its pride rotten away, with two rust-encrusted swords crossing behind it. Moriarty extracts a lengthy chain, coiled about his neck with a hefty locket attached to the end of it. He opens the locket to reveal the picture of a very young and very beautiful woman, and he quivers as he caresses the sheet hanging directly above his head. Soon, my love. So very soon. Fanny Lynn Monroe once again throws the last of what little she has into her shabby suitcase and makes fox light for the door. Ah! Only to find Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson standing directly behind it. Dear God! Fanny! Fanny! Holmes! The good doctor's fingers caress the tender black and blue imprint that a monster's giant hand wrapped around her neck like a blanket. For whatever reason, Miss Monroe's encounter with this fiend was far less tragic than that of her sailing companion. She may prove to be of some value after all. Fanny lays safe and fast asleep on Watson's bed as he quietly closes the door that leads to the 221B parlour room and approaches Sherlock Holmes, who is scribbling the name Lawton Tobert upon a blank chalkboard. The University of London. Is that not your alma mater? Yes, and I'm quite sure that my good standing as an alumnus will... Give you the right to pry into the accounts of others? Bosh. I can recall it one time that... And I can recall quite clearly two young rogues breaking into the school morgue, stealing a cadaver and then placing it in a vacant faculty seat during the prior year's commencement ceremony. Oh, come now. That was simply the misadventures of a young man. In fact, it was so long ago that I can barely remember it taking place. Well, I can remember it liking it was yesterday, due in large part to the fact that it was I who was in charge of morgue security at that time. Yes, well, um, you seem to have done very well for yourself since then. Yes, I have, haven't I? And because of it, I'm a very busy man. Now, good day to you, sir. Why, for two dull farthings, I would... Thrash you! Within an inch of your wretched life! Watson! By God, man, it's good to see you! What are you doing here? 
And how are things going with a new flatmate of yours? The uh, flatmate situation is proving to be most interesting. As for my business here, that is proving to be a most frustrating condition, to say the least. Perhaps I can help then. I've just been appointed manager of this office. Dreadfully boring business. But it does pay the bills, and it seems I'm not much good at anything else. Medically speaking, that is. You don't say. Ah, I see you recognise that old codger. I too, for when I took over here, I needed a new man, and he was sweeping the halls. I felt I owed the poor bugger something after all that nasty cadaver business some years back. Those were the days! Were they not, Watson? Yes, they were. Indeed. I've got it! For once, the old school tie comes in handy. Well done, Watson. Well done. Dr. Heinrich Vomlied. University of Ingolstadt. Ingolstadt? Never heard of it. But then again, if it's not British, why bother? Sherlock Holmes lifts up his violin and bow and stares unflinchingly at the words Lot and Tobert scribbled upon the chalkboard. He then places said instrument upon his shoulder and pinches it with mould in a square jaw. His fingers move like pistons, and the faster day in his bow travel, the faster his lips move, and his praying eyes never blink as they focus upon the board. There we are. Walton Robert. Sir Robert Walton, to be more exact. Alas, the fog begins to lift. The garage-like door is wide open, revealing an old twisted oak tree with a broken, much-forsaken swing that undulates non-compos mentis in the wind just beyond it. The last of three massive horse-drawn carriages trot inside, while several worthless goons struggle with a number of enormous wooden crates and boxes. I sincerely hope this unforeseen act of mercy does not slacken our web. The woman was needed, but if she chooses to speak, who will believe her? The police? I think not. The police are the least of my concerns. If you are fond of the girl, so be it. But you must return to London and bring her here. I want no loose ends. And what do I do? And what do I do? The shift in English countryside flutters by a small observation porch at the end of one of Her Majesty's trains. Dealer Fleur walks onto the platform and wipes his damp brow with a silk handkerchief. Then, like a hawk upon a field mouse, the sweeping torso of the monster dives from above. 
snatches De Lafleur by the scruff of the neck and pulls him upward. As if he were none but a feathered pillar. to me to be nothing more than the ranting of a madman, daft from the effects of being snowbound. Yes, but Walton, on the other hand, was in control of all his faculties, and acknowledges the existence of this monstrosity, for his own eyes beheld the foul creature. And what is the connection between this ranting maniac ledged within Walton's journal and the illustrious Dr. Vomlied? Yeah, well, obviously the University of Ingolstadt, but... Exactly. And do you not find it more than just a coincidence that Robert Walton's account of this creature matches perfectly with the description conveyed to us by our slumbering princess? But this is absurd. Walton would have to be well over a hundred years old by now. A young man depicted here, but nonetheless. We'll have Delafleur take a look at it. Come now, Holmes. Do you really think the scoundrel is going to hang about just because you told him to do so? The end of the locomotive rips past a waving wheat field to reveal a lifeless dealer floor, hanging rigid from a mail post. Looking like a beached blowfish with a royal purple tongue folding like a jelly slot piece of bread and a pair of bulging eyes that looked like they was looking for a flat piece of willow wood to swat them from his face. A murder of crows directly above take very keen notice in this particular distortion. The lavishly appointed household of one said De La Fleur is flanked on all corners by the Metropolitan Blue. A two-wheeler pulls up to its front gate, thus releasing the great detective and his ever-fateful sidekick. And there they are greeted by a fast-approaching pair of Scotland Yard inspectors. You need to be coming clean with us, Mr Holmes. We've just about had it with you and your shenanigans. Yes, we seem to be at the end of our rope with these... Shenanigans. Where is De La Fleur? He seems to be at the end of his rope as well.
The good doctor's bed that Fanny Lynn Monroe once laid safe and sound in now lay empty, with the window across from it sitting wide open, its doors swing inward and outward as if in distress. Holmes and Watson charge in and look with great unease at this empty bed, especially the good doctor, who finds nothing more traumatic than an empty bed. These days are black, and the cards are wicked, my friend. But I shall not fold. I must pack and be gone, at once. And where is it we are off to? Sherlock Holmes looks down with an air of reluctance at a puddle of emerald green sludge boxed within a titanic footprint. Martini Theatre on the Air would like to extend our warmest regards to you, our most sincere listener, for tuning in this evening. We would also like to take this moment to thank the Martini Theatre players whose tireless effort and patience made tonight's broadcast possible. possible. They are as follows. The Slade, Victoria Turner, Kerry Lynn Weber, Toby Williams, Michael Northergut, Jim Dana Tall, Timothy James Walsh, Stephen West, D.C. McCauley, Elmer V. Jackson, Robert Romeo Coates, Charles Waterman, and J.D. Booth. Martini Theatre would also like to thank Brian Conwell for his melodious introduction. The Man Who Would Be Sherlock Holmes was written and dramatized by Walter Barclay Campbell based upon the award-winning screenplay of the same name. Until next week, this is M-T-O-T-A, signing off. <laughs>